0: Hello, everybody. I would like to welcome everyone to tonight's RENCAST live with our very own Jake Rady of Flat6 Innovations and our special guest, Lee Jenkins from Hardtech UK. I've been wanting this uh, RENCAST for a long time. Uh, This has been uh, a work in the making. I'm happy and proud and honored to have these two gentlemen in the house tonight so we can talk about all things Porsche engines. But uh, before we begin, I want to uh, talk about a few things that are going on um, with RenVision. And of course, tonight, if you have questions, please feel free to use the YouTube chat. Um, In the second hour, we're just going to reserve that time to answer any questions you have. If not, we'll just continue on with the discussion. So please do that in the chat box, not the comment section. The chat box, if you're normal uh, setup or YouTube your chat box is going to be the right of the screen so if you have questions there please uh, do that in the chat box okay now coming up here uh, with the knowledge group we have a a webinar coming on this fall and it's all about what's in my oil now um, this will be presented by Jake Raby of the knowledge group and a lot of people will think well is this a about a used oil analysis? It's really not. This is totally different. This is about people that are, are looking in the canister or looking in the old, pulling the old sump, and are seeing stuff in there that doesn't look right. Is it plastic? Is it metal? Is it big time detail about what you should do and wh- how to evaluate what's in your oil? So that's coming up this fall. So I hope that uh, you will keep that. Uh, uh, in the radar, so to speak, and we'll try to make announcements uh, on Rentless and on our Facebook page and uh, at other platforms. We'll try to keep you up with the uh, specifics on what time and date that will be. So that's coming up this fall. Um, now, there's a book that we just released. This has been uh, a great, amazing opportunity for me. Uh, and by the way, this is Bobby Mitchell, I'm the host for tonight's. Um, Oh, Rencast, and I just wanted to say that this uh, whole M9X engine assembly video series has been a great experience for me. It took over a year of planning with Jake Raby, and we just re- recently released um, the workbook. And that workbook is a supplement to the video series. So. It's not to be mistaken as a standalone guide, but it is something that you would definitely want to use if you're going through the video series. A lot of people like to make notes and they like the more the written more than they do say the video. And so they like to look at the graphs, the diagrams and go step by step that way. So the workbook is is the thing that you want to get if you have the video series. Uh, We have another book that we announced and it's uh, Jake has written and jake um you want to tell them about the new performance book that uh you released
1: yeah so it it's it's in the works obviously i'm i'm probably about a third of the way there one thing that's really kind of being a challenge is a lot of the illustrated parts breakdowns and that sort of thing i've had to reach out and get a a lot of help with that um, I'm not good at drawing things, and of course, I I've got to have all original uh, content, not like I had to go copy things out of other publications or anything that may have been shared from the factory, so it's all got to be original, which I wouldn't want to copy it anyway, but it's just a challenge to uh, come up with a lot of that, uh, of course, having to go back through all the years of pictures that I've got of of things that we've modified, things that we've done, and find all those photos over the last 18 years, and get them where they need to be in the publication. Actually, the content was was fairly easy because it's all memorized stuff. It's all in my notes too. Um, but it, it's all about the performance M96 engine. You know, it's a, a handbook. It's a guide, if you will, M96, M97. Um, it's not gonna just go through and tell you how to build an engine. It's not an instructional handbook. You know, the the workbook we just talked about on the focus on M9X engine assembly, that's what that's all about. Um, and I also have performance classes that do that, the hands-on class and even an online class. And um, this is all about the, the things, the the mindset of the performance engine builder, what you've got to do to prep one of these engines for the track or, or street use and make it big and make it live, which is kind of my thing, right? So um, there's a lot of tricks and secrets and what I call silver bullets in there. Um, but I think that I'll probably be done with it by probably Thanksgiving is what I'm thinking at this point. I'm, I'm making a lot of progress and, um, it's, it's, it's being really good. I'm having a lot of fun doing it.
0: Sounds good, Jake. And, uh, another thing that people have asked for, for years and years and years is to have uh, flat six apparel. Now this is just for flat six innovations, engine customers, people that have had, are either going to have their engine reconstructed by Flat 6 Innovations or have already done that and would like to have some uh, apparel to, to remember that experience with and it's uh, high quality stuff as you can see on the screen you have the hats and you have the the really nice um, polo shirts that are the the new what they call dry fit material and uh, you can see the golf the golf bag and the duffel bag so uh you know, this has been a, another thing that's been in the work of uh, lots of people ask every year for, for this kind of thing. And so Jake has made that happen for you guys. And um, with that, you can uh, go to the F6store.com if you are a Flat6 Innovations customer and had your engine reconstructed by that one amazing team. And uh, again, we well, just want to welcome Lee to uh, this forum today and uh, to the Rencast and uh, if you you see the picture there hartek is another amazing porsche shop in the uk Uh, it was started by barry hart we all know him as baz and if you see that image right next to barry is our man lee and i can't believe it's been 37 years but it's 1984. talk about irony though and i kind of chuckle when i hear 1984 is the year that hartek (laughs) started If you know anything about that that famous classic novel, it's kind of funny that Heart Tech start started and they're doing some amazing things with Porsche engines. So at this point, I'm going to turn it over to Jake. And Jake, I know we wanted to talk to because I know a lot of people have asked um, about uh, the pre-sales for 2023. Did you want us to talk about that before we get our discussion started with Link?
1: Yeah, yeah. So, um, and and I'll start off with a store. So, you know, the store is for guys that, that if you're our customer, if you paid me for an engine, and you want some swag, you want some cool stuff, um, you know, flat six hats, shirts, all that stuff, which I've got this old rabies shirt that I've had for years, I don't even have one of the new shirts myself. Um, But you can go to f6store.com and you can log in using the same login that you have into the website for our support system. So if you're a customer from years ago and you don't have a login, go create one and then send us a ticket and we will set your permissions so you can see that store. Um, it's not for people that just want to go buy a shirt or a hat. And the main reason why we don't have the, the admin support to, to be able to support a, a, a huge amount of this sales. We only want to sell this stuff to people who have our engine and bought it directly from us. So if you're a second owner, uh, I call those people stepchildren sometimes. It's not really fair, but if you're a stepchild, I can't help you. Um, but even though you got the engine, we still love you've got it. But we, our original purchaser is the guy that can buy the buy the swag. So um, there's cool stuff there. And there's also, we, we got uh, the billet coolant caps and billet uh, oil fill caps and a bunch of other little trinkets. And we got some add on stuff in there. So it, it's pretty cool to have a store like that, but I'm not trying to make it where it's into a, a major thing. Uh, we're just trying to keep it focused on our family, if you will. Um, so, yeah, it, as far as engine sales go, I took on the last uh, job yesterday. So that, that, books us through all of 21, all of 22, book solid. Um, and now we're basically starting a wait list for 2023. And, you know, Lee and I are going to talk about what COVID has done to the parts supply and, and things like that a little bit later on. And I've been able to use COVID to my advantage to this point. And um, it's been a good thing because we were able to go in and allocate all the components we needed months and months and months ahead of time. Um, And we haven't been late with a job yet. But, well, I take that back. There was one that camshafts coming back from the camshaft grinder were about two months late because they all got hit with COVID at their shop. But that's the only engine out of, I don't know, probably 80 that we built in that amount of time that that were impacted. But at the end of the day, part supply is going to be a problem um, because we have not seen a manufacture date on any new porsche part that we use that is newer than march of 2020 that is the newest date we've seen i don't know if lee's been paying attention to that but it is very clear that if these parts have been manufactured that they are currently not being manufactured uh, or not gotten into the system if you will so we're going to talk a little bit about that um but yeah we're, we're booked out but you know don't let that slow you down from sending in a ticket and getting in line. When I do this, I just start a wait, wait system. And then we'll schedule a big Zoom with everybody once we're ready to open up 2023 uh, allocations. And it'll be kind of a chronological thing to, to get in line for 2023 once we know what our part supply is going to be like, once we know what the costs are going to be. Uh, even shipping is crazy. It's costing us about an extra $800 per engine just to ship components and and do processes. So uh, Lee and I are going to talk a bit, little bit about that too. Um, but yeah, so, I mean, with that, Bobby, I think we just kind of get right in the middle of it, right? And I'll jump
0: in here to say, uh, uh, Jake and I were just talking about this before we started. We've had some storms coming through uh, Georgia. So I lost power uh, around lunchtime and I was kind of concerned this was not going to happen today. But if it does happen, if we lose power, I can't do anything about that, folks. So We'll just re-log back into the YouTube and streaming. So just bear with us. If that if we lose connection with streaming, it's the world of technology, you know, and the storms, they just don't like it. So if, if it does happen, we'll just try to regroup. So just everybody be patient. I hope you don't run off. I hope you'll come back. But um, right now, everything is smooth. There's no thundering lightning going on. So I hope that we're smooth sailing through this thing. But just don't forget, so, uh, before I turn it over to Jake again, I just wanted to say, make sure that if you have questions, please don't hesitate to ask and do that in the chat box. I'll be monitoring that throughout these these two hours. Jake?
1: So um, before I get started, I've already had a, a, a question here came through. Uh, hey, guys, can I get store access? This just popped through, right? So if you're a customer, and this guy is an engine customer, actually building his engine right now, and he's a, he's a good guy. And I'm glad he did this because it reminds me that I need to say this. If you are a current customer and you have a login in our support system, you have store access. Again, you have store access. If you've received a ticket from us, if, you, if you've if you sent us a ticket, we've replied to it. We have already set your permissions for current engine purchasers and past engine purchasers. Go to f6store.com and use the exact same Username and login that you have uh, for your password in the support system, and that will get you to the store. We already thought ahead and have done that to every one of those people before you open the doors on it. Okay, um, so again, if you can communicate through the tick- ticketing system, like this fellow just sent me a ticket, then you have store access. All all those people do. All right, so. For everybody out there that thinks that that Lee and I are going to be in here, we're going to butt heads together, and we're going to raise hell with each other, we're not going to do that. I I just want to let you know that this guy and I, we're basically almost exactly the same person, just in two different continents, okay? Because we see the same stuff. We share the same stories. uh, We go back and forth with each other, and and we – always can understand the other guy because we've already seen the same thing and so and we're also not really competitors we're building engines we're doing them a lot the same and we did this work apart from each other so i think the most unique thing about all this is until maybe two years ago we We're doing the exact same thing and not really knowing the other guy was doing it or he came up with it right i knew they existed they knew i existed we didn't study each other we didn't do anything like that we didn't size each other up we were just doing our own thing the way we'd always done it we developed things a certain way and come to find out we both use nicosil plating on cylinders we both address the problems the same way now there are ways that they do it that are different than what we do and there's ways we do things that are different but in every one of those scenarios, we have respected the other guy's position because the other guy's position also makes sense. So it's, you know, and we also fight the same thing all the time because we both deal with people who try to be our competitor that are just a bunch of hacks. We deal with this all the time. So it's very refreshing to see that our practical application knowledge has been gathered the same exact Way and we are attacking these problems that we see over and over again with the same methods. And we did that with zero collaboration. And it's also interesting the fact that neither one of us has factory trained staff. I don't have anybody here that's factory trained. I'm not factory trained. And then Lee posted the other day, they're the same way. So we've been able to practically watch these problems and come up with fixes to them that rival each other. So today, what we're gonna do, we're gonna share with everybody a lot about what we see. We're gonna share a lot about how we fix it. We're gonna share some battle stories. We're gonna share some scars. We're gonna share some some experiences with humans that are purchasers, because we run into the same stuff all the time. We're gonna share some things about these hacks that we see that are building engines and really should even have a toolbox. And we're just going to sit here and shoot the breeze. There's no script with this. I don't know what Lee's going to say. He doesn't know what I'm going to say. There's no questions been posed up front. This is just a bull session at the end of the day. And I want people to understand that we are going to talk about failures because this is an M96, M97 engine. And the reason why most everybody is watching this is because of failure, period. And I will also start this out on a little bit of a light side. We're both fearmongers. We both take that role very well. He is the European fearmonger. I am the American fearmonger. And we share exactly what we see. Now, are there things that I don't share because I think that it's going to cause more controversy than I currently want to deal with? Absolutely. I've got things sitting on the desk right in front of me right now that nobody wants to see. Lee probably does too. But we haven't seen those things enough to bring them up. And before we started this show, we were talking about some of the wild and crazy things that we've seen. You know, he's found a drill bit broken off at an engine that had never been apart from the factory. I found extra wrist pin clips in an engine that never been apart from the factory. You know, all kinds of stuff like that we've seen. Um, So we while we share the same purchaser market, we share the same supply chain in a lot of ways. We don't compete with each other. I even send them work from people in Europe a lot of times that don't want to ship me a car or ship me an engine and they've done the same with me so it, it's all about sharing our knowledge because we understand that we're both on the same wavelength we in over two years or so we've seen that we both take a lot of pride in what we do and we both end up sharing a lot of the same things and that's why I wanted to Lee, Lee to be on Rencast here with us this afternoon now it's afternoon for us it's evening for Lee So that also is something unique. We've never had a Rencast during the day before, right? It's always at night. So everybody's having to stop work to listen to us. But I had to stop work to go do this. Lee's already at home, but I literally had to go wash my hands. I just tore down a 356 engine, and I was all dirty and nasty. I had to put on a shirt so I could play the part here today because I've already already done more work today than I even wanted to do. (laughs) So, all right, Lee, welcome to the show. Yeah, Um, thanks for having me. So, so, but let's just start off. Tell us, you know, how long you've been at Hard Tech, what you did before that, just kind of briefly, and uh, let us know who Lee Jenkins is.
2: Well, first thing I'm going to say is I'm not an engineer. I'm an engine builder, a reconditioner builder, I bore, I grind. I can do it, I, I do the engine. So, I'm not an engineer, which is, is, is and also you don't like being called either, Jake. No,
1: not at all. And everybody thinks we're engineers, right? I have a lot of people call me up and he'll be on the other end of the phone. I'm a mechanical engineer. Nice to talk to another one. I'm like, Nope, I'm not an engineer, man. I barely graduated from high school and I probably wouldn't have if it wasn't for special education that I was in from third grade till the end. Right. So I'm not an engineer. I've hired engineers. I pay engineers, but I'm not an engineer.
2: I know a good engineer. (laughs) i do a very good one that's barry and barry i like say barry started high tech 84 barry and grant uh me basically how did i start i started working for my uncle who, who owns an engine shop um started helping him out and it just grew from there 13 years now high tech um as you all know recently just been met a director so I'm doing something right, I think. Just, just about. Yeah, and cor-
0: congratulations on uh, being promoted to director. What exactly does that mean for you? What was different from the last role that you have to director? I mean, you it? can tell Baz what to do now. <laughs> or does oh he or or keep <laughs> you? Or does he keep you? Still keep you in line?
2: Oh, he still tells me what to do. I think. Well, I, yeah. We'll leave it at that, because I know he's watching, so we'll leave it at that.
1: Yeah, so, um, you know, obviously, since we see a lot of the same things, you know, when you're carrying down an engine and you see some scored bores, you post it. I do the same thing. If you see an IMS bearing failure, you post it. I do the same thing. Um, I've been so busy here lately, I really haven't had a chance to do it, build an air-cooled stuff, honestly. Um, and fighting with the state of Georgia, who's bringing a bypass road right by my facility and wanted to argue about access. And I've had two weeks of pure hell dealing with that. But uh, aside from that, we share, you know, what we see and we both do it where there's no gray area, right? Um, It's very direct. It's very blunt to us. This is just business. You know Um, we see the same things all the time and, and we see, a lot of the same characteristics so you know you've got the guys that have a failure on the track and those failures are always in their own ballpark right and then you see the guys that have a failure on the street and those failures are always kind of in their own ballpark and then we both fight for the same kind of parts like I know you need crankshafts all the time I see you post that well I do too and, and people have to realize that you know these engines have the same things happen to them all the time it's the same set of things that fail especially guys that are on the track. You know, if the M9701 lets go on the track, that guy's gonna need a crank. He's gonna need a set of connecting rods. He's gonna need an intermediate shaft. He's gonna need a crankshaft carrier. He's gonna have to have all that stuff. The whole bottom end's gone, right? Same thing with a Cayman. Cayman comes apart part of the track, it's a total loss too. You know, we've got tons of Cayman heads and Cayman uh, camshafts and top end parts because all the bottom ends blew out. We had to buy bottom ends and whole engines just to get that stuff. So that's another thing we share is that we we if anything, sometimes especially if we were in the same country, we would be in competition to buy the parts because, you know, that's a that's a challenge. So um, since COVID is getting ramped back up here and it's really big and bad here right now, how is it doing there? Are you guys still open and going? Are they trying to shut you down again? What's going on?
2: I mean, we've been shut down, we've been open, shut down, open, shut down, open. We're just getting out of it now, I think. Everybody plays the game. I think, we'll, I think we're, I don't think we'll get another lockdown. So, hopefully, just moving forward steady as we go now, getting busier again. But saying that, we, we haven't got any quieter during COVID. We've been as busy.
1: Yeah, we we've actually been busier. I mean, I'm I'm busier than I've ever been and and here in the states pretty much the entirety of the automotive aftermarket has been that way. Um, you know, everything is busier. Doesn't matter what what vehicle you work with, everybody's busier, regular shops are busier, uh, rest- restoration is busier, everything is and vehicle values are going up. I don't know Uh, That'd be a good topic, too. You know, 996 values especially have gone up crazy here in the last year, especially the last six to eight months. Have you seen that happen there as well?
2: I think it's starting to, to be fair. Um, Don't really keep a a keen eye on the prices myself. I mean, that's Grant. Grant's the car salesman as well. Director, owner, car salesman is Grant. So I'm lucky, in in effect, I, I just get to do what I love doing, and that's building engines. So. I'll leave all that car sales. I don't need, yeah. i definitely not a car salesman.
1: No, I, I don't deal with that either. But what I do deal with is people who have an engine, you know, and they're trying to justify in their words, keeping it. And I don't hear that anymore. I, I heard it six or eight months ago, but now people are hunting these cars, you see. So I don't really, I'm not seeing that because, you know, I, I don't sell vehicles either, but you know, we don't have people giving up on cars. We don't have somebody saying the engine failed and I'm not going to fix this because the book value of this car is only so-and-so. The, the value has gone up now where the engine doesn't cost more than the car, and because of that, they're going to keep it. Now, Boxsters are still low. Early Boxsters are still low. Uh, S's and base models both are still low. But all the 911 variants have been up and, and, and going up big time. 9971 is also the same thing. Um, but that's good because you know, it, it makes it worthwhile for us to do what we're doing. And people don't realize, I mean, it's been this way with Porsches and their value versus what it costs to build an engine for years. I mean, when I was doing 356 and 912 work and all that 914 work, I was building a $10,000 engine for a three or $4,000 car all the time that's been that way. Uh, that didn't just happen with these vehicles, and, and the vehicle values really didn't just drop because there was engine problems. The vehicle values dropped because of when these vehicles were manufactured, and every vehicle of that era, sports car-wise, dropped to the floor. They've all rebounded now, and the, and the M96 cars are rebounding. Um, but I think that's another interesting dynamic is that maybe the U.K. is a little bit slower to pick up on this tidal wave of uh, vehicle values over, over the states.
2: I, I, I get that, yeah. I, I mean, I've been looking at some adverts on the group for on Facebook. The cost of the cars your side of pond seem massive compared to what they are here. Well, the thing is, I, what I will say, I don't know if you find the same as well. If you've put an engine in a car over there, I assume that's adding more value to it as well, like it does wheels over here. I mean, it people does. Advertise, it, it, people advertise cars using our name.
1: Yeah, the same thing here. And sometimes they advertise it false because, you know, we serialize stuff and we seal engines up and that sort of thing to prove that it's ours. Um, and we keep records on all that, obviously, just like you guys do. But there's fakes. You know, I tell people, hey, go look for this or what was the guy's name? I'll I'll tell you if I built that engine. I got 90 percent of them memorized. But, um, but yeah, definitely. And it's not just the value of the vehicle increased. It's the marketability. That's the thing. We see people that have our engine in the car. That car is on the market for days and not weeks or hours and not days uh, in today's market. But they never get sold. People don't wait in line and spend this kind of money to go sell the car. Usually it takes a dramatic life change to lead to that uh, You know, health issue, a death in the family, um, big time economic issues. It takes something to lead to that in most cases. So not hardly any of them get sold. But every now and then a guy wants to go to a turbo or whatever the case may be, or just change over to a different mark altogether, and he'll sell his car. Um, but, yeah, the marketability is definitely a lot different. And, and we, we know that that's making an impact on that vehicle's value and marketability because as soon as a car gets listed – the customer doesn't have to tell me it's listed. We're gonna start seeing tickets roll in from people wanting to buy that car. Hey, is this a real thing? Is this a real one? Do you have records on it? I'm like, here's a link on the on the website. Go look at it. I, I can't I can't deal with all my stepchildren. Sorry. <laughs>
2: <laughs> it's quite crazy though. I, I'm very I'm, I can tell you if I built that engine. You yep. have to look at it. you only have to look at it, and I can tell you if I built it. Or we built it, should I say?
1: Well, it's another another good one is this. We also can tell which of our quote-unquote competitors have built an engine because of the sealant they use, how dirty the the crankcase is, um, how much extra sealant they used in places they shouldn't have used it, um, where they put certain marks on the engine. I had a guy last week want to send me an engine to have it built and he he bought an engine from somebody else he didn't know who had built it or whatever and he was going to use it for a core and I'm like I'm not even going to take it for a core I'm, I don't build engines that way I'm going to build that engine but I'm not going to build it because I can see where the where the the heat sensor tabs are on it so they I I could tell exactly from 20 feet away which one of these competitors so to speak had built it and i'm like don't even bother sending it to me the guy's like you're not going to look at it i said i don't have to look at it i know that everything inside of it has been compromised to the point that i can't use it so don't even bother
2: (laughs) two giveaways silver spray and heat tabs no yeah it's not been done by somebody who knows what they're doing hasn't that
1: exactly the silver spray paint's a good one because you know they they don't even clean underneath it right no, they no. they just paint right over the dirt and then when you put the thing in the wash to after you've torn it apart then you got this it looks like gray camouflage it comes out of the ultrasonic cleaner and it's got this stringy paint hanging off of it and grease and it's just a, a nasty mess they look o- they look good in photos which is the idea i think yeah, you know it yeah. looks it looks clean um, exactly yeah, it's artificially clean. So, you know, with that being said, you know, we can sit here all day and talk about that sort of thing and and what people have done. And and the thing I want to say is, I remember when we got nothing but virgin engines. Right, everything that was out there was a virgin. The only people that had been into it was a factory. Nobody mm-hmm. had built it before. They hadn't repaired it before. And I remember all my guys. We've been working on air cooled stuff that was old for years. We started working on these things, and I was the first guy here that started it and and I was doing it in hiding, actually, believe it or not. I had a but in my main building, I had an area in the back that nobody ever went to customer wise ever. And I had kind of the mad scientist workshop back there with all these m ninety six engines pulled apart because I was trying to determine whether I wanted to work on these things or not. And all my air-cooled employees are coming back there a couple of times a day and they're like, well, what's this? what this is crazy? It doesn't make any sense to me. And since then, I've trained all those guys on these engines. They actually are better with them now than I am because I've kind of gone full circle and went back to air-cooled stuff. But we were talking so much about how cool it was that we were pulling engines out of junk cars, and they weren't even dirty. That's how long ago this was. The cars hadn't had time to get dirty yet. But then all of a sudden, 20 years has passed. And it's like, how the hell did that happen? How, how did these things get dirty now? How are we having to restore these engines now? We remember when they were brand new. Have you had thoughts like that? Like, man, I, I remember before there was any hacks and people half-assed building these engines. And you could just take something apart from the factory and just put it the way you wanted it.
2: Yeah, well, like you say, you, you go back that so many years. It was You were taking them apart and it was just standard standard yep. like it was out of the factory now we're taking them apart and we've badly fit steel liners people all sorts of like you say hacks basically it's, it, they're not repairing it they're just making it do they're not they don't last <laughs> can't get through to people that what what they're having done and, and paying in UK good money for they're not lasting but people seem to want to go to let hacks at it and I, I don't get it why would you want to pay twice like i was saying to bobby earlier people are having to pay twice because they're just not like you because they think we're fear mongers, like you said but we're not yeah i can't show i cannot show you something i don't do i could i could lie and say everything's rosy but it isn't is it no
1: no, I'm I'm the same way, and you know we'll get on the steel cylinder rant here in a few minutes. Obviously, we could do a whole store whole show about that because almost all the people that are doing these engines and they're doing them quickly and they're not taking time with them are using the steel cylinders. Now, the fella in Germany, uh, Jarno, he he impresses me with what he's done, right? Very good, but, very good. Because because I really and I hope he's watching this because I watch what he does. And, and, you know, the iron material he's using for his cylinders, that Mercedes material, I've got several Mercedes engines of my own that have that material. You can't wear it out, right? But every attempt I've seen of doing that, and I'll have to tell you, I built an iron cylinder engine a few years ago trying to make it work. I wanted to see if I could make it work, and I couldn't. The expansion coefficients, if I – let's just put it this way. If I had really low standards – and I could deal with blow-by-compression, and I could deal with low manometer readings, and I could deal with oil consumption, and I could deal with all those things. It would work, but it was loud. It, 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 you know. I would love to know what he's using for running clearance and what piston material he's come up with because he's clearly making it work, but it's not cheap the way he does it either. You know, he's just doing it because he has experience with those cylinders. And because in in Germany, Nicosil is very difficult to do because the EPA, right? And it's being more and more difficult here um, because of environmental stuff. Um, but you know, obviously, that's the reason why Porsche really went away from it was because environmental concerns, and that's why they've gone over to the Suma which is what I've been developing for a while. Uh, and I, I understand that that Barry has been talking to some guys about spraying some blocks for you guys. It'll yeah, be yeah. cool when you start doing that because you know, we, again, I want to see how we approach it from the same angle. I've got about two years or so into it at this point, and I was at the lunch in the beginning. Oh my God, we were—it was horrible. I couldn't make anything work. But after I used that old air-cooled engine to be my guinea pig, and I took it apart, you know, 15 times in 40 days, and I dynoed the piss out of it. At the end, I made it work. And then now we've got, you know, a, a couple of water-cooled M96s and a 9 Alpha one out there running it, and and it's working. But it's only working because we worked through all of those headaches with the old simple air-cooled engine on the dyno that I could take apart 20 minutes, you know, um, using the same bore sizes. But yeah, the the steel cylinder thing. You know, what's what's your main problems of that, right? I want to see if we share a lot of this. I think we probably do. But when you see an engine that has come to you with iron liners, one, tell us about how long it has lasted, and tell us why it came to hard tech.
2: Well, they don't last long. Let's just that's that's the the easiest where they do not last long. Um, low on compression, burning oil. Some of them even. As something that an M96 engine doesn't do, egg gasket problems. And that's because the cylinders not fit right. Um, as you I think you look at some of the pictures we have, and it's two different materials, it, they're not good together. Like you say, your expansion, your contraction, your rates, they're just they're different. So trying to fit a steel liner in an aluminium block is quite difficult. Like you say with John or John, or has it right, it takes all the aluminium out. A lot of these people are trying to fit a sleeve into, remove the locusil and fit it in there. Some of them aren't even boring all the locusil out and using a thin sleeve. I mean, that locusil, I have a piece in, in, in there. It's not as thick as the thing, but it is thicker than you would think, if you know what I mean. So they're actually trying to put it on sill They're not actually taking all the locusil out. So straight away, you're onto a loser. They spin, so they spin at the bottom. They drop down. Every problem you can think fits in a steel liner. That I've seen the worst one. What other day? I posted it on the other day. The, I think this cylinder was loose, so they've welded it in at top, and then never bothered to hone it. They let the rings hone it basically.
1: Wow! Yeah, I saw that, and I mean that that's just crazy. I mean, it's proof that somebody just doesn't care about what they're doing. And, you know, the thing is, I could see doing that to an old Volkswagen engine or a 914 or something. And I saw all that. I mean, you're talking about hack stuff. You know, when I first started all this stuff, everything I did was was black sheep. It was the stuff nobody else wanted to work on. And, you know, it's one of those things where, these people are doing more hack repairs than we saw with old Volkswagens back in the day. And what doesn't make any sense is it still takes a tremendous amount of time to take this engine out of the car, to undress it, and to 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 do the work. So if you half-assed do it, it's still going to take up days of your time to, to put the thing back together again, knowing that it's compromised. And I can see doing that with a bug engine, right? So – you could have the motor out of the car in 15 minutes and you could have it torn down at 45. Um, but it did, didn't work with that stuff either. Um, and and certainly with this is a different story. Um, but I've seen the same things you're talking about. The dissimilar materials is, is definitely got to be the Achilles heel of it um, because that's the thing that makes them noisy. I, everyone I've heard is extremely noisy because they have to set the cylinder to piston clearance up. So, that works around the expansion. Otherwise the engine gets hot, the piston has grown, the cylinder does it because it's iron, and then the thing galls and it and it bore scores and it it, it does all the things that an old Chevy would do, right? Because it has an iron bore. Yeah. Um, so you, you've got to, to come up with that. So what they have to do is when it's cold, they have to run more clearance than it needs. And then they're trying to even put a stock piston back in it sometimes. And that stock piston doesn't even have the material compositions anywhere close to what it needs for an iron cylinder. It's not even close to it. So yeah, Jarno, he's, he would be a good one to have on this show too, because he's made it work. Um, And like you said, he's been able, he takes the whole cylinder out and makes it work. Um, But, you know, as far as also the head gasket problem you're talking about, I mean, I've seen one of these head gaskets fail, you know, and, and that was a situation where a guy did not use a a vacuum lift to uh, properly get rid of all the air in the cooling system. He tried to follow a, manual and just, you know, do it by opening up the heater core and all that stuff with the climate control and and just topping it up as the engine was warming up and it blew a head gasket. Um, But that's something they don't do. But like you said, when you put that steel sleeve in there and then you've got a a differential between the expansion characteristics and then you got a multi-layer steel head gasket that's designed to work with an aluminum cylinder and deck, it just doesn't jive very
2: well no forgiveness, is there? The egg gasses, no. There's, no, there's no forgiveness in them. So if you're if you are not perfectly on, flat on that top, it's going to leak. And it's leaking past right into the cylinder. But people will still do it, won't they? No matter what we sit here and say, people will still pay to have it done. Well, yeah, and,
1: and I think the reason for that is because they think that we're just sitting here advertising what we do. It, it, we're not. It's, it's a BS session. We're telling you what we see. Mm. Um Because at the end of the day, what these people have to understand is that both of us have more work than we could do. And because of that, when they make a poor decision because they don't want to listen to what we're saying, they've just hurt themselves. Because if they love that car, at the end of the day, after they've already gotten, went and bought this engine with iron cylinders in it or whatever, or some Romanian IMS bearing or whatever the case may be, if they love the car, they're going to come stand in line here or stand in line there at some point it's going to happen and if, if it doesn't they're never going to reach the finish line with a car i mean i've seen this happen with every one of these people that build these engines here in the states uh and and don't get me wrong i wish there was somebody i could send some people to i mean really good people that i just can't help because we don't have time but there's nobody uh, anybody that i would try to send them to it would just be like an injustice for trying to do it um and I think it's probably the same way there because everybody else has got a different way of doing it. And they're all about just doing it quick and doing it cheap. I think that's the key,
2: right? Yeah. There's people trying to make a quick book out of it. It's basically that is what it is. you know, the, And
1: how many times, how many times have you heard, this is just another engine. There's nothing special about this thing. Anybody can build it. You know, you guys make it sound like it's all so critical and everything's got to be a certain way. Those people get their asses handed to them on a silver platter when they start to work on these engines because let me tell you something people if you treat this engine like it is anything other than a porsche m9x engine you are going to be the loser of that battle you can go into it thinking you're a hot rod that you've built ferraris and you built this and you built that hell i built jet engines and it still handed me my ass so, you know, it's just one of those things where it's its own beast. It has its own inherent characteristics. It has its own inherent flaws. And you either address those things and let that engine be your instructor or you turn into a failure. There's no two ways about it. What do you have to say about that, Lee?
2: Plenty, of, see plenty of failure, but people think, like you said, people think it's easy. It's, it's an engine. It shouldn't be hard to do. We can do one. I mean... As you've seen, and you do it, I do it. I, the number of people at questions we're answering on, online on the forums, helping people. I mean, I, I will just give a shout out to Finn, who's doing his the man in the garage. Uh, get well oh, yeah. soon, get well soon, Finn. I know you've just had a bit of trouble and you've been in hospital. He's a lovely bloke. Listen, he's listening. You know, he, I'm I'm trying to help him through, and he's listening. If people will listen, it's easy to explain and it's easy to show them. That, that's my biggest thing. If you if you want our help. Listen.
1: Yeah. And 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 again, it's one of those things where how many times does somebody send you a message or something and they argue with the answer? Like, you know, the guy asks you a question and obviously he's, he has a preconceived idea, right? He, in his mind, it's going to be a certain way, but he just wants to see what you've got to say, but he does not listen to learn. He listens no. to respond. Yeah. Right. It, it, and then actually, and then he will come. Yeah, he will come back and argue with the answer. I'm like, well, why the hell did you even ask me the question? You already knew the answer, and you won't listen to what I had to say anyway. At that point, I'm done. I'm not they, helping they, you. Sorry, dude.
2: They usually try and give you the answer they want from you in the question.
1: That's yeah, what I find.
2: The message, you and it's like, I have this problem, this problem, and I, I know it's this. But what do you think? Why are you asking me? You know what it is. Why are you asking me? You know what the problem is. You've told me there. That's the problem. So whatever I'm going to tell you, not going to matter because you're not going to listen to me.
1: Yeah, I I can't tell you how much we share that trade as well. I mean, it, it happens all the time. And you can tell just by the way this guy starts the question out if he's one of those people that is listening to respond instead of listening to learn, you know? And um it, it mostly it happens with IMS bearing stuff, right? Because people and, and here here comes the fear mongering, right? <laughs> I'm the American fear monger, present and accounted for. Okay. If you I'll, I'll if you want to call me fear monger today, I'll let you have it. You're getting the fear monger, okay? Um at the end of the day, they don't want to accept the fact that they need to address something with the IMS bearing. Okay, something needs to be done, and let and, and we agree on the fact that if it's a car that has an M97 bearing, the large diameter single row, just drive the bitch, just drive the car. Don't worry about it. I've always seen like three of them fail in all these years. I don't know how many you've seen, but they just don't fail. You know, no. don't bore out the back of your crankcase and put in a Romanian bearing or do some crazy something like that. Just drive the car, change the oil frequently, and drive that car. Okay, yeah. but the guys that have the early cars and now dual rows are failing actually more than single rows because there's this preconceived thing out there that, oh, I've got the early car. I've got the 99 or I've got the 2000. It's got a dual row. I don't need to worry about this thing. That's only the later cars. But that was the case a few years ago. But now those cars are the only ones we're seeing that fail because all the single rows have been retrofitted. I mean, we hardly ever get a single row bearing failure call these days. And the reason why is because there's been about 60,000 of those cars in the States have been retrofitted that we know of because it's had the stuff put in it that I've invented, right? So we know about how many have been fitted with that. So that took a lot of those out of the equation that would ever fail. But the guys that had that early car, they had a dual row car, you know, their Porsche club or their whoever, or their independent mechanic doesn't keep up with the times. Okay, we have insider information because we start seeing these failures, right? And as we see them fail, it's like, okay, it's time for the dual rows to fail. It's the time and service thing that gets it. It's not mileage. It's time and service, right? And about three years ago, the dual row failure started. And I I can't tell you how many times I see on these Facebook pages all the time. It's like, oh, well, I've got the dual row. I'm not worried about it. I'm rolling the dice. Well, when you roll the dice and you end up with snake eyes and that's all you've got, and you, you need to spend some money because you, you've cost yourself a lot more than you would have saved basically by, by changing the bearing when you could. Now you've got collateral damage to deal with,
2: right? So like you said with a so, dual row, the dual row obviously that, that then gives you the early crank, which is why Barry and I, we we invent we designed our own ends so we could use yep. the large bearing, we, we, we had duplex chain your early crank um i, I do have some because I, like i said to bobby i'm not good with pictures so like you say you've got your, your duplex chain but it houses your larger bearing yep job done
1: that's a um, that's a really good that's a really good part and i've i've talked to barry about buying some of those things from you guys because you know now we're starting to run out of good dual row shafts and of course everything mm-hmm. i i get i build gets an ims solution Um, but we've got solutions that fit the larger bearing shafts and all that sort of thing too. Um, but that's, that's definitely a good product to have because it allows you to not have to go find another crankshaft, right? You can, because you can swap cranks back and forth and you can swap IMSs and you can make all that work, but the later cranks are the ones that always blow up. They're yeah, in the engines yeah. that have other failures, so you can't find one. So that's a that's a good thing. And you guys have developed a lot of products that are right in line with a lot of the stuff that we've done here. And again, we weren't talking to each other when we both came up with this stuff, which is another thing that I think kind of meshes us together a little bit more than people might think. Um, yeah, that, and and some, sometimes we 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 have our own ways of doing things. And I think the biggest problem that we have is that i'm american and you're british right yeah because yeah. we don't even we don't even spell tire the same way
2: i mean I, i've never heard of a wrist pin before i mean that got me that one <laughs> well
1: a, a gudgeon pin I, I mean i heard of it but when i was a kid i worked at an import shop and i was the guy that got stuck working on all the british stuff right so the MGs oh, sure. and the, the more, uh, yeah, all that stuff. The minis, the old minis, I worked on all that stuff. I, well, I, I, I hated it. Yeah. Oh yeah. Three main bearings, three main yeah. bearings.
2: Um, yeah, but
1: yeah, so, so I did all that and the SU carbs. And I, I mean, I just, so it, I knew what the Gudgeon pin was, but you know, um, but that's, that's funny because we, we share a lot, but we also don't share a lot. And, um, <laughs> You know, it's it's just unique how we fight the same things. So from an IMS perspective, a lot of people are listening to it to see to what we're talking about here to hear what you've got to say about the intermediate shaft. Since we both agree the M97 bearing is the best thing the factory had, you know, yeah. what are what's your position on IMS bearing failures today and, and what you're seeing? And are you seeing a lot of these copycat IMS products? um having yeah. issues too
2: yeah uh obviously i'm not going to name them i think we all know the ones that are there i mean the easiest way to the one that sticks out at least five mil out at end its shaft i can't say how that's anywhere near correct not retain retain it by a loctite not happy with that at all um you your oil feed ones I mean there's yours, which is as I've said, if if anybody asks my opinion, if they want to fit one in situ, it's the the LN, the IMS solution. It's the way to go. If you're tearing your engine down, the way I go and the way I advise people to go, is go with your larger bearing. they very, very, very rarely fail. If in fact I ever had any, so I've got to back what we sell. Um so that's my solution. If you're turning, I'm lucky because everyone I do the engines in bits so it doesn't matter I can fit what the largest shaft in everything we don't do yeah. any in situ IMS bearings um I think we, we have one of yours we got one from Charles as a sample uh one of your oil fed ones it's a great product I'm not going to lie it, it is but it's not what we use if you if you come to high tech you will get a larger bearing
1: and that's and I respect that. And and the thing is, that's why the M ninety seven diameter of IMS solution was was come up with and is a product now. And we, that, that can be put in a couple of different ways. There's an adapter sleeve or there's actually a, a larger diameter bushing. It's the same solution, it's the same flange, everything's the same, it's just got a, a larger bushing. So um, you know, a lot of people don't understand the differences between um some other products that have a oil feed and the ims solution the ims solution is a plane bearing right it doesn't have any more balls it doesn't have any rollers it, it gets rid of a, at least 11 wear components in the engine because it tries to make the engine like an air-cooled engine right i even use the exact same journal diameter of that plane bearing um as the the air-cooled engine when i when i came up with it it's the same exact diameter because it works perfectly um So that's a little difference for those that that may not really be familiar with an IMS solution versus something else that's just spraying a a dynamic feed of oil on a rotating part inside the engine that ends up creating nothing more than windage because it's uncontrolled oil. Um, You know, the IMS solution works like a main or a rod bearing basically does. So it is controlled. It's restricted on its flow. but that's cool, and I, I know you guys have always respected the solution, and I've always respected the fact that you just want to put an M97 bearing in it. Because again, I don't see those fail. I, I just don't. No. The only problem that I see with them is if you ever have a problem with it, you can't pull it out without tearing the engine down. I mean, that's mm. that's kind of the problem. And of course, there's the people that go and bore the back of the case and do all that craziness, and then ruin the case where you can't do anything with it again. Um, you know that that's something that that can be. Uh, so they
2: should, they should sell that bearing with a, a bag of swarf yeah then just say, exactly when you've done it open your oil cap just drop all this in good to go
1: exactly
2: exactly <laughs> why would you bore it and put swarf all over your engine
1: exactly i mean that's that's the thing and they they think that you could just put some pressurized air in the in the crankcase and blow that debris out or you could put some grease on the end of the tool and it collects it i mean they've never they've clearly never done machine work where something that's 20 you know 15 feet away from a milling machine ends up having debris get settled on it because it's you're in a machine shop you've created a machine shop in an engine shop when you're doing that that practice but you know I've, I've seen my share of those come back as well um so now let, let's talk a little bit and of course we we talked about the cylinder sleeving and the fact that you guys use nicosil now the way that you you guys do nicosil is a little bit different than the way that that i've developed it with ellen engineering again we end up with the same basic end of the line picture we we end up with a nicosil bore that's basically like an air-cooled engine or a, like a metzger uh engine as well you know it, it, even a, a metzger turbo or a metzger uh, gt3 um, up to 2011 in the turbo and 2013 or whatever it is in the gt3 we end up with the same reduced friction and better wear and all those things that nicosil gives us that's the nickel silicon and carbide but the way that you guys do it is a little bit different with the way the cylinder is done. Now, the machine work of the block is pretty similar, but yeah. the, the, the time that, you know, how the block is processed is a little bit different and what you guys do for supporting the bottom of the cylinders is a little bit different. And I've got some reasons why I don't do it that way. I did it that way a couple of times, but I've got a couple of reasons why I don't do it. So uh, right now, since you can't see, Bobby has a picture up uh, where you've made the the reinforced um, material at the bottom of the cylinders that helped to support the bottom of the cylinder. So if you want to talk a little bit about that, I've actually got to plug my laptop into a different cord. I'm going to step out of the screen for a second so you can talk about that. And you can kind of go over it, and then I'm going to come back and go over the reason why I don't do that, it won't be an argument because we've already talked about this. So th- it's just this, a little this, bit different mindset.
2: Yeah, this, this, the image that I'll be showing at the minute, um, that's for one of our capacity conversions. So it's oversized. So basically what we're doing, because of the increase in capacity of your bore size, we're increasing the outer diameter of the cylinder. So basically we're taking all the cylinder material away. So instead of the cylinder having no support at the bottom, that's what we call the bottom support ring so basically at your bottom of your cylinder has got some support if you didn't have that basically all you'd be supporting your cylinder on is the middle ring if as you see you've got your support ring directly at the top as you're looking at it there then you've got your middle ring which is your main section of your of your casing and then at the bottom like the picture you can see the the machine you can only see two of the machine faces where supported at the top so that cylinder liner is now supported in three positions whereas if it was if there were no support at the bottom there's there's every chance for movement of that cylinder liner which is things we've seen you know other people's way of doing it and we've seen this happen the bottom of the cylinder is actually flexing so we're taking that possibility away um that picture there that's that's not an oversized conversion, so that wouldn't have the bottom support ringing because we wouldn't have took every bit of the cylinder the original cylinder away if you get what I'm saying um yeah, but we support sure. you at the top I mean it's like your M96 engines have the big issue with ovality at the top because there's no support so our closed deck as we call it is giving you full support around the top of the cylinder as well as
1: yeah, so there's definitely some some big differences here. Now, the LN engineering practice also removes the entire cylinder. So we're not just sleeving that cylinder the way that we showed that iron cylinder earlier. And I think that you guys for a long time didn't realize that, right? You thought that, and I think maybe when I was on the phone with Barry or we did a Zoom or something one time, he still kind of thought at that time that, That we were doing what everybody else does, where you just kind of bore the original parent material, you put a sleeve in it, and you nicosil plate it. That's not the case. So, that whole cylinder is also removed, and we're using the center of the case, as you showed there, to support it. And there's also other supports that are kind of at the top because of how the cylinder is made. Now, there's basically three different ways that we do that. A couple of them are not really shown anywhere because I use that for my builds because I do a semi-closed deck sometimes where I close the, the upper deck the, kind of the way your picture was, but instead of it having the support ring at the top, it's actually machined in the cylinder, okay? Right. So the, the whole cylinder has got that top hat on it that's a, that that provides a, 100% of of constant contact and shares the load from the cylinder head gasket, okay? So there's a, a huge difference there in in the fact that I don't have that ring. It's all kind of like a, a monocoque design, is all together. And then there's actually an O-ring that goes in the cylinder where it goes through the middle of the block there. So when you machine that area out, there's an O-ring there. Now, the, the cylinder material that we're using for that, we used to use it to still do in air-cooled engines. So it was it's the exact same material that we had developed years and years ago since 1999 with that. And we did crazy stuff with that cylinder material. I've, I've made cylinders that were a, less than a millimeter thick, and they still held up on an air-cooled engine. Um, at 107 millimeter bore size, we didn't have any more room to go, and it still held up. And that material, the way that Charles has specified it and had it made, it doesn't move. So... That's one reason why we don't really bother with anything at the bottom like that support rail because what you have to remember, everything here – I mean, it's, we have a heat index of 105 here today, right? So I think our environment that we operate in in the states is another big determining factor about what we do because you know, here – There's places where our low temperature of the day is higher than you're ever going to see in Europe (laughs) for a high (laughs) temperature. You know what I mean? Um, And and almost in all the areas where these cars are constantly used the most are high ambient temperatures. You know, Texas, Arizona, uh, Southern California, Florida, where you got humidity and you got heat and it's that way like eight or nine months out of the year, you know. Uh, It could be 90 degrees in January. Uh, We've seen that many times. I've seen it be 85 degrees here in Georgia in January before. We were in shorts last year in January. Christmas time, it was crazy. Um, So the heat does matter because I've always really worried about coolant interchange and getting the coolant around the entirety of that cylinder. And then on the bottom side. You know, where the oil needs to be to do its part because part of the bottom end of the engine is oil cooled as well as the top end being water cooled, it kind of shares that that load a bit. And knowing these engines always have high oil temperature issues has always been a problem. So that's one I think that's made probably the major difference between how we address those two things because we're having to address it based on the material that we're using and how we've been using it for years, and the fact that we have all these high ambient temperatures to deal with where you guys, of course, are doing it your own way, and you've got your material, and you've got the the ways that you do it. And at the end of the day, it works for both of us equally well because we don't have problems, right? It's not like anybody, nobody's sending a Nicosil block to a shop that does iron cylinders because the Nicosil didn't hold up. It's always the other way. The iron guy ends up sending his engine to the place that does Nicosil because the iron didn't hold
2: up. Exactly. I, I don't think I've had anybody... Ring me and say they've got one of my engines or one of our engines or one that Barry built before I even worked there. And like you say, since 1999, Barry's been building these even before I got there. And yeah, they don't come back. It's yeah, I have we, that question we all the time. Yeah, yeah it's people ask to what me. We both do.
1: Yeah, I mean, people ask me all the time. They're like, you know, um, what's the. You know, what's the how long do one of these engines live? And I and I tell them, I honestly can't answer that question because I have not had one wear out. You know, we we've we've had a few come back, don't get me wrong, when you do a lot of work and you you push the envelope. I mean, I'm at 485 horsepower now, right? I mean, we're pushing the envelope. I've taken a, a 2.7 block that used to have an 85 and a half bore. We've punched that thing out to a hundred and four millimeter bore <laughs> in the same block. And and that engine went from making 200 horsepower to 485. So we push the envelope. And yes, sometimes things don't work right. But at the end of the day, usually there's a human factor that came into that where somebody missed a shift or somebody got it hot or somebody did something that a lot of times they're not honest with you about, even though they don't know we have ways to follow what they've done um, and see if they missed a shift or see if they took it to the track when they really didn't. Um, there's things that happen, right? I mean, if you haven't built an engine that has failed, you have not built enough engines. And and I have to remind myself of that. Every time we see something new, right? We saw something new with a cylinder head a couple of weeks ago, and it it bit me in the tail. And I'm like, we haven't seen this before. Well, the first thing that comes into my mind is we finally did enough, right? You do it enough, and you're going to see it. And that's the, the edge that you and I have over people that work on cars and they have a normal repair shop and they just try to build an engine once or twice a year. Those people don't see these problems all the time. They don't know how to correct their process or how to make their thing better because they don't want to make the mistakes everybody else is making. They don't get to see enough of those bad cases to change what they've what they're doing or what they've got going on so when you do the same thing all the time and you do it at a specialist level it's like medical right here in the states your regular family doctor is a general practitioner you go to him if you sprained your ankle or if you got a cold but if you have a cardiac problem you go to a a specialist well you and i we're the cardiac guys right i I don't care if somebody comes in and their radio doesn't work I, i don't I don't think they should even be listening to it. They're driving a Porsche. you got a six-cylinder orchestra behind you. Turn the freaking radio off. But at the end of the day, I don't care about the car. I care about the engine. I'm not a car guy. I'm an engine guy. So there's a big difference there. But when somebody tries to take on the role of engine builder and they don't do it enough, they don't have enough feathers in their hat, as we say, and they haven't failed enough to learn what they should not do what, what do you think about that
2: definitely I mean they don't do it right it's it's a plain and simple it, it, they, without wanting to sound I don't know big-headed they are when you've built as many as the likes of I have you have Barry has other lads that are players who have, have built them as well when you've built enough they are easy um it's like the discussion we're having with all this zoom meeting with Bobby about doing this and doing that and I'm thinking please just let me build a Porsche engine computers they're not me give me a Porsche engine and i'm I'm happy
1: yeah i' i'm I'm the, I'm the same kind of way that's why I hate to be in the office i mean I walked in my office for the first time in, in many weeks two weeks ago in my Office was dusty because I, I don't go in there. I don't, my computer is like five years out of date. I don't, I don't even go in there. I, I want to build engines. I didn't start this place because I wanted to be a business person. I started because I wanted to build engines and not have anybody tell me how to do it, right? um All right. So, Bobby is going to queue up a video we have of the Nikki's process. So, this will help everybody understand because we showed some pictures of what you guys have done and kind of how it's done. So, Bobby's going to queue this up now. You can see from people that, you know, when when people are sitting back looking at the difference, it's dramatically different, the process that's done. But at the end of the day, it's the same end result, right? I mean, we're we're still ending up with a nickel-silicon carbide wear surface. We still have a piston ring that's complementary to that. You have the friction reduction. You have the wear reduction. And you have that soup that we talk about for a proper ring seal people don't realize how long it takes to get this right. I mean, you know, Barry and I were talking about it one time because again, we weren't developing this stuff together. We, I think both of us would have gotten it done a lot quicker and a lot better if we were, because we could have shared some of the same things. And I think as, as Sumabor continues on, we may end up doing that later. Um, but at the end of the day, no matter how you get to the final destination, you get the benefits of Nicosil, No matter if we do it here or if you guys are doing it there.
2: Oh, definitely. I mean, just what you've doing got a look. I mean, that's that's our cylinder now. To me, that doesn't look a lot different to what yours did as they were putting them in.
1: Yeah, it's there's there's not a lot of difference there. I mean, and, and I've, we actually have one. I don't have a picture of it now because it's, it's something that's only done on my R series engines, the really big bores, like something over a 101 where, where it is a semi closed deck. Right. Um, but it actually has ribs that are similar to what you're talking about there with that one where we are trying to get some extra coolant interchange around yeah. it because it's such a big diameter bore. I don't worry about that if it's not over 101 um, because we've never needed to even running in crazy ambient temperatures. But you know, that, that cylinder, it has a lot of the same characteristics. And because we're removing all the material out of the block with each process, I mean, it's almost exactly the same, same end result.
2: Yeah, definitely. I mean, I've just got it in front of me because I brought some stuff home and if I pick two things up now, I mean, we're just seen exactly similar to that in the video from Ellen Engineering. Then yeah, we we'll go to it, that. So the process, like you say, is, is not far from each other's, but as again, like you said, no collaboration at all. So it's crazy well, how-
1: I think that what it is is a testament to how people who think practically and have a lot of common sense and have worked on things for a long time and don't let education get in the way, to be quite frank with you. Because uh, you know, engineering is what led to a lot of these problems, and manufacturing engineering led to a lot of the problems that we practically solve. Um, but when two different people on two different continents can get the same end result never talk to each other, never see each other's pictures, never see each other's emails, and not talk to each other for at least 15 years and come up with things that are that close, it screams that it just makes sense.
2: It works. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's the one thing you can say. Both solutions to the problem work. Does it matter? Yeah, because you're
1: you're ending up with the same result. You're still ending up with a nickel-silicon-carbide plated bore it's not coated it's plated there's a big difference yeah. there all right i mean there's a big difference now the bore is a coating and yeah. when you start playing with that stuff it's a whole different world it's it, i love it i'll get fired up on suma bore because it's just it, it makes me happy that we can use a modern process and that we have something to go to When the environmentalists win, they're going to win. It's going to happen. Here in the States, it's going to happen sooner rather than later. I mean, it's steamrolling right now. And and just so everybody understands, the plating process for Nicosil is a lot like chrome plating. And I want anybody to go find a, a local chrome plating shop. Like when I was a kid, there was a chrome plating shop at every town, right? People chrome plated bumpers and they chrome plated all kinds of stuff. You won't find it today. In my state, I only know of one chrome plating shop. That's it. Everybody else is closed down. and It's the waste that comes from, from the plating process. It's all the acids that are used. It's very harmful for the environment. So what we're doing arguably is going to help the, the environment when, when we have to go to it. But we're making a very small footprint in the overall environmental impact of, of any kind of plating. Um, but at the end of the day, all my goal is is to have something that's already proven, already worked up. We got known ring packages, known clearances. We've got good results. Where we're making at least the same or maybe more power with Sumibore. And we've got something we can fall back on because if we don't think about that and the environmentalist win, well, we're stuck doing iron cylinders, and that's just not going to work, right? That's the only other way to go. It's it's either sumibore or iron cylinders. We know iron cylinders are not going to be the answer. Um, so that's why we're doing that, but it's, it's just for the future, and, and we have to think about the future today. Um, so with that being said, um, you know, what, what are you seeing from um, some of the challenges with component supply, right? Have you guys had any problems getting parts in the UK at all with COVID and, and everything
2: else? We, we, we are struggling certain things. I mean, uh, the highvo gen intermediate shaft to crankshaft Ivo chain back order no actual data as to when we're going to get them luckily we have a good stock so we're not struggling it, it's certain silly little things really nothing none of the major components we're struggling for the only other problem as well with, with the Porsche is the costs Um I mean we were talking the other day weren't we about the Vario cam units and trying to develop some way of making them between us because the cost of them is ridiculous, and that I'm seeing. We've seen, started to see more of them fail. I know you were yep. saying you've you've seen more than me. It's, it's happening, so I think that's yeah. Somewhere. And to clarify
1: that, so everybody just to understand which units we're talking about, the five chain engine, the cam adjusters, right? They they have the little problematic wear pads that give you big chain, you know, chain uh, camshaft deviations. And and they're between they're situated between the intake and exhaust camshafts on the 996 up to 2001 Boxster up to 2002, and that thing will fail. You get a cam code. You'll change the sensor. It's really not the sensor. The problem is the cam is not actuating. So um, the the the, re- the sensor is actually reporting correctly that you have a cam deviation. So this not the sensor itself is failing. It's the fact that the cam is not moving. And then you'll do a cam deviation check and it comes up 23 or 25 degrees out because that's how much adjustment is in that unit. Then you find some weird kind of mint green looking stuff in your oil. That's the seal out of the inside of that uh, cam adjuster unit. And then you've got to pull the cam cover off, remove the cam shafts and change that unit. Um, Those things are like eleven hundred bucks now. Right. So um, and, and they're not going down and there's also a limited supply of them. And we've been seeing them fail pretty hot and heavy for about the last three years. And now Lee's just starting to see them fail. Again, I think that's probably the oil temperature issue because here in the States, it's so much hotter and it's hotter for a longer duration of time. Hot oil does not do those seals inside that unit very, very good at all. Um, But he and I have been talking about how to remanufacture those units or perhaps make a billet replacement for the body, which I've kind of been working on loosely. He's cut one apart. I've cut one apart. We really haven't collaborated on about what to do with it yet. But, Lee, I did come up with a way to, to easily remove that um, that end that holds it together. You know, that thing is a real bear to get apart. So I treated it like a valve seat. I just took a MIG welder, and I MIG welded around it, and it made it shrink up, and it comes right out, just so you know. So, you know, it, I treated it like a valve seat on a 914 head where you just weld a bead around it. While it's still hot, you yank it out. That works really well. I've done it like three times so far. Um, and I think I've come up with a way that we can put it back together again too, because getting it apart is the challenge without damaging that body. And mm-hmm. then I've looked at a couple of solutions here for the seals, um, trying to find seals. That's a, that's a weird kind of viton material. And I found a brown viton material that is almost got the same characteristics of what I think that green stuff is. So again, that may, may be the first thing we're able to kind of work on together and try to come up with that. Because again, paying $1,100 for a factory part that might not even be available really isn't a wise decision. You know, if we can make cylinders, we can make all this other stuff, we can make IMS solutions. Uh, hell, I've even had to make timing chains. You know, we've had to, right now, timing chains are hard to find. I bought everyone in the States and we buy everyone we can find. Uh, and that's just the main timing chains. You're, you're talking about the Hivo chain between the IMS and the crank. We're also having a hard time getting those. But again, when COVID kicked in, we had to take care of the people we had jobs for and we bought everything we could. So, um, but yeah, that that's a challenge. So yeah, we'll be working on that five chain cam adjuster. Um, so Lee, you want to say anything more about that before Bobby opens us up to some questions?
2: I think I think we'll, uh, we'll wait till we get that nailed before we and then i think we might have to talk about that again so people can see where we have done and what we've done and then they've got a product there that they can use
1: yeah because it's a simple part i mean it really is you i mean you replace the seals in it every now and then those pistons get galled up you know but that's from people that don't change their oil frequently enough and the the pistons where they slide up and down will gall but that's not really the problem the problem is the seals are failing
2: yeah the are You know, aren't they yeah, I think there's, the one I stripped, there's four seals in it.
1: Um, yeah, four seals, yep. And they are a little different between the left and right side. Of that piston yeah, is different are. as well. Yeah. yeah. And I think the reason for that, obviously, the directions are different, but also the oil pressure is just a little bit different between the left and right banks of the engine. You know, people don't realize that if you put a, a oil pressure gauge, uh, I, I did it when I was developing the solution, I put a oil pressure sending unit on each cylinder head on the cam cover, and I put one gauge and then I would just had a toggle switch and I would check the oil pressure between each side of the engine. At certain oil temperatures, that can be 15 PSI different at different RPM ranges between the left and right banks for the, of the cylinder head at the same time. It, that was very eye-opening. That's the reason why I use the spin-on filter adapter location as part of my novel concept for the IMS solution and I wanted to rob oil there. One, because it was just filtered, hadn't been anywhere else in the engine. Two, it had consistent pressure. That was the big thing. And it also didn't rob any oil pressure from the valve train. Yeah,
2: yeah. It it is the best solution, to be
1: fair. Yeah, well, I I appreciate that. All right, Bobby, so open up the floor. Give us us some questions. What you got? Okay,
0: so I think we've answered this first question, uh, but I guess if we could in a nutshell, can you tell us what are the different approaches, what basically Benjamin is asking, are there differences between the two solutions, the hard tech and the flat six innovations uh, engine programs? I guess in a nutshell, because we've gone into it pretty in detail, but what would be kind of a summarize that?
1: Well, I I mean, let me weigh in on that first. I think the biggest difference is we're Americans and, and they're, they're british <laughs> i mean that's that, that's the biggest <laughs> difference um i mean the way that we attack things is a lot the same um but i think we're just as different as we are the same i mean and then there's some things we're dead set on like i'm dead set on uh, dynamically balancing every engine we build no matter if it's stock or not one reason for that so i've got a balancer sitting in the corner because it's what we do um they're not that way right not to say that's wrong but it's just a difference, right? I think that's probably the biggest difference, technically speaking, that that we've argued about a little bit on some of these Facebook pages, and it's really about the only thing we've argued about. Um, you know, the business is a little bit different because they do build a lot more engines than we do, and they have a volume set up. So Lee is an is is a builder, and he we were talking about this before the show. He has people set up to support his role of being a builder where he doesn't really do all the processes, where on my side, my builders do everything associated with that engine from A to Z, pretty much, and only their hands are in it. Not to say one way is better than the other, not to say one way is more profitable than the other, not to say one way gives a different accountability or responsibility than the other, but it's just a difference. Um, Lee, what do you think about that?
2: I think that one of the biggest differences I see is is how you book your work in as well. I mean, you know, as we've spoken about before, you know what you're building. <clears throat> sorry, in eighteen months' time, I don't. Um, it's like at minute. I mean, between myself, uh, Ryan, Craig. I mean, there's there's about six of us involved in the actual engine process. I think we've got about. 24 engines on go as we speak all in various stages where i would probably say if i'm i don't know if i'm mistaken each your engine builders will have one at a time will it
1: yeah exactly we we have one at a time so you know my builder knows like you said 18 months ahead of time once i assign a builder to the project he knows what he's doing he knows that customer's name he knows if the engine failed or is elective or what failed Um, you know, he has all the information on that. And then he even handles all the logistics of that build from the very, very beginning. Um, It's almost like he is a one man show. He's a one man shop. I treat it like I did when I was the only guy here and I had to do everything. Uh, I do have a parts uh, allocation specialist who helps get all those things in. We have our own stock of a lot of things, but you know, months ahead of time, all the parts are in a bin. And then the block gets processed and the heads and all that stuff gets processed. So yeah, that one person is in charge of it. Um, and he does know what he's doing. So we have to know a year ahead of time. Hey, when you're going on vacation, you know what I mean? It's it's, it's a bit of a challenge because we have to think so far ahead. I've currently got 74 engines on the books, um, that we are in process with and we know who's building 74 engines right now. Um, so that's, uh, that, I think, is a, a big difference. But again, just like the cylinder thing, at the end of the day, we end up with the same result, you know, and everything, mostly everything I do is big, right? I'll, I mean, I'm talking four liter or so, usually, because it's it's what we've always done. I mean, it just is. Um I kind of find building stock engines boring all my guys kind of feel the same way and realistically to do one stock is really no cheaper because we're still going to replace all the same parts the pistons cost almost exactly the same the cylinders cost the same you know we're going to do head work to support the bigger bore and all that but we're going to do head work anyway so we're already there so i mean i think that's the other difference is that while we do a whole lot of big stuff and only do maybe five or six stock engines a year, it looks like you guys do a lot of stock ones and you do a fewer amount of big ones. Is that fair to say?
2: It, it is, but we are going more conversions. A lot more now will be in the, the oversized engines we offer. Um, I think one big difference is it. you Americans can drive a lot faster. Your roads are better. That'd be that's why the old one yeah.
1: power we got a lot more space that's for sure the last time i was in england i was just blown away because you got a ton of space but it all like belongs to the royals you can't do anything with it everybody's <laughs> in these little villages you know you're in little towns and there's all this space that nobody can use um but yeah we do have a, a dramatically different uh way of living here in, in the States. And and Americans just want things big. I mean, I can't tell you how many times I have to explain to people that bigger is not better. You know, if bigger is better, we would all be driving around a 14-liter, 12-cylinder engine. You know, that's not the case. Um, there's a reason why I build just a few of these really big, like 4.3s and 4.4 liter engines. Now I can do a 4.6 liter. I have fun with them, right? But it's very, very hard. To get that engine to be efficient at that size, you know, we're already out of intake, and I'm not talking about plenum and throttle body. I'm talking about intake in the vehicle. You can only get so much air in and so much air out of the vehicle. You know, if the if the engine never had to go in the car and all we do would sit here and race dynos, it'd be a different story. But we have to consider the factor that the the uh, the car comes into play. And, and gearboxes and clutches and flywheels and all these other things that, that come into play, and CV joints and everything else. So, you know, like the big ones we do for non-alpha ones, I'm not even doing PDK work now, uh, engines for PDKs that are bigger than a four liter because we're blowing apart PDKs. I had one that failed three times. So, I mean, it. trust me, it's a compliment. Anytime an engine builder has a phone call, man, I blew up another transmission. Thank you. You just gave me the biggest compliment you can. It is my job to grenade and blow up that gearbox. So I was effective. Does that mean that it's going to cost you $15,000 to replace it? Yes. And I'm sorry for that. So PDKs, I'm, I've already turned the volume down. We're just not building crazy power for PDK cars anymore. Um, Cause I got kind of tired of that. I got tired of saying, sorry, I did my job. Um, yeah. But you know, at the end of the day, I have to, I have to restrain people a lot because I have to explain to them. Look, an engine is an air pump. We can build an engine that makes great efficiency at four liters. Building that same engine at four point three liters and retaining that that amount of volumetric efficiency and making the same power per liter is very difficult to do once you get above four liters. Can I do it? Yes. Are we damn near at five hundred horsepower? Yes. But at the end of the day. They don't need it. And, and and I want to make sure I build what they need. So, yeah, the American factor is, is quite a challenge because the other thing is you'll never hear me say that an engine's oversized, right? Because to me, that doesn't exist. You know, that's like a car that's too fast. It can't ever be too fast. Right. But so that's the reason why I don't use that term. And then also I don't say a conversion because to me, a conversion is you've taken a like a three eight from a nine nine seven and you've put that into a three four nine nine six to me that's a conversion so that's just something that a difference in our our terminology a difference in our our lingo we're both speaking english but it's a little bit of a different way um so you'll never hear me say conversion and you'll never hear me say oversized but you guys use that all the time so it confuses people i think
2: yeah yeah it's only really like your tire in your wristband in it again
1: Yeah, a gudgeon pin or a wrist pin. You know, it's a wrist pin because it does this. (laughs) (laughs) All right, right, Bobby. What other question? Yeah. Yeah. Go ahead. We got another thirty minutes for questions.
0: So. Okay, so the next question is from Joby, and he is asking Lee to please explain why they use the closed deck approach uh, that tech uses. Can you explain why you went with that approach, and uh, can you explain? A little bit about open
2: and closed deck design the reason we've closed the deck as i explained before when i was when me and jake were talking basically the m96 m97 engines are well known for ovality i mean we've had cylinder blocks from factory with an oval at the top of the cylinder so when we one of our cylinders as one of the pictures bobby was showing it's supported all the way around four four nice good points where that cylinder is supported so basically as you've got your cylinder there's no movement especially on your force on your forces side um your open deck as as i say with the ovality there's movement because of the because there's nothing supporting the top top of the cylinder the the cylinder can actually move it flexes um if you look at the early 2.5 boys they were a hell of a lot thicker on the on the wall thickness so they didn't flex as much plus if you look inside the water jacket at the top they have little little very slight supports going up which stops the cylinder moving whereas on the m96 engine there's no support at all at the top so it's got it's got the ability to flex and move which then gives your ovality which then leads to your, your cylinders cracking
0: now does The cylinders, have you seen the cylinders, the ovality, the, the roundness of the cylinders uh, from different climates, a colder climate, have more uh, problems with losing its roundness versus, say, a, a car that's more of a hotter climate?
2: Not really, no. Uh, I think everything we measure with an original cylinder in is oval. I don't know if Jake's, Jake can say the same. I don't, I don't, I don't think I've ever had... An M96, M97 engine where I've took it apart, it's got lock of silver cylinders, and even from factory, and this is a new one we've bought. I've, I've stripped them, and there's still oval, four or five, six thou oval from new.
1: Yeah, we, we see that too, but here where I see the most ovality and the most taper also is at the center of that bore. So we're seeing we don't notice it very much at the top, we see bigger changes where at that point of the cylinder where it passes through the block where you've got the oil side and the coolant side, right? Right right at the bottom of the water jacket, that area is where we always see a bigger difference. And I think what we're seeing there is a difference between engines that are always running hotter climates. And then what you are seeing in Europe, even though there are a lot of hot places, not as many, and maybe there's not as many Porsches concentrated in those hotter climates but we're seeing a lot more difference there. Now, as far as one thing that we've done with the cylinders over time, the material has proven to be the key to strength with those cylinders and and the ovality and fighting all that. So I've torn a lot of the engines down that have Nickies in them and we've measured them afterwards, test engines, whatever. I ran one of these engines wide open throttle for two hours. I melted the exhaust. I mean, all the exhaust bolts exploded. They all fell off. The exhaust gas temperatures were that high. Not even those cylinders were that round or that ovaled. I think we, we got them to move like a thousandth, even trying to get a problem like that from a heat perspective. Um, but what I've tried to do and what Charles and I have tried to do since the beginning was find a happy medium of enough support at the top of that cylinder to keep it rigid and to support the cylinder head gasket and all that, but to keep the cylinder head to, to cylinder coolant interchange up because we want to increase the amount of interchange that we have from the coolant that's coming through the head into the block and passing back and forth between those areas we want to keep that up i notice you guys also are machining out those those orifices at the top of each cylinder to get more interchange and we do that too uh, because that's that's a key but again i think we're doing the same thing two different ways uh, because there are some cylinders that have some some bits machined into them that touch off on those areas of the block you were talking about in the early Boxster. And then again, I've got the semi-closed deck, which is not really a thing that's quite as as well known out there because I just do it on the really big bores where we try to get more support because we're putting a piston in the thing that's up to 104 millimeter. Um, but yeah, I think that's probably the biggest difference. At the end of the day, both of them seem to work just fine.
0: Do you feel like uh, Porsche went to a closed deck design on their nine alpha one? Is that was that a good move or is that a bad move?
1: I think it was a good move. You know, have we seen some problems with it in high temperatures, especially in racing? Yes, we have. Um, they first did that with a Cayenne. But something that's very interesting about not just Porsche but every manufacturer of the time, so every manufacturer of the era that had gone to an open deck. We're talking mid 90s engine design every single european and asian and even domestic manufacturer that went to that went back away from that in their later engines just like porsche did right so they they all learned the closed deck was a better idea if you designed the closed deck into the entire cooling system so you know that that's something that that when you go to the nine alpha one we're seeing certain areas of cylinder number one specifically i think lee has seen this too we see a lot of engines that have no problems on the nine alpha one with any cylinder except for cylinder number one and cylinder number one has the same heated heat type issues related to the same one third or so of that diameter of that bore no matter where that engine has come from and I've seen some of Barry's pictures and you guys have seen that too right Lee
2: yeah also I mean the bore clearance for a start are <laughs> so just not giving them enough clearance plain and simple
1: yeah and the clearance is all over the place that's the other thing and, and you know that's another thing about bore scoring is that when you look at original blocks and you measure the roughness average of the cylinder Out of ring travel and out of piston travel, like on the side where nothing is ever worn against that cylinder at all. It's never had a piston or a ring against it. And you measure that bore and you find out that bore had scoring up in the the cylinder area where you do have wear, the area below the rings is always rougher. Hmm. And it proves that cylinder was going to score from the beginning. It it, yeah. it it was destined to score. It's like they, they were not paying attention to the roughness averages before these things left. And because of that, they were too rough. Or sometimes we saw that they did not have enough RVK, like the, the valley that holds the oil was too shallow. Well, usually when that valley is too shallow, end up with a rpk which is the peak value that's too rough so now you have something that's rough that's trying to scuff the rings and you don't have enough valley to hold the protective layer of oil and to create ring seal and and i think that's something we also learned apart from each other right um and and really didn't share that until the last couple of years with each other that yeah the cylinders that we see are scoring those cylinders were rough from the factory from day number one the ones that look fine, they have a good roughness average. And Bobby and I have shot a video, part 12, he's just got to edit it, of the bore scoring series where I show that with my profilometer on boards that are scored both in and out of ring travel.
0: Yeah. that And that's coming up. I mean, I'm excited about producing, uh, doing that video, as well as uh, we're going to do, uh, I just want to tell people we're going to do a video on cam staff deviations. And we're going to talk a lot about the 6305 bearing too, Lee. So you might want to (laughs) check that one out since that's the bearing that you guys use. Okay, the next question is about single mass flywheels, or is it smart to move away from the factory dual mass flywheel and go with a lightweight flywheel or a single mass flywheel? Is that a good thing, bad thing? Is, Is there some solutions out there that work or I don't
2: know? Simple Lee, answer. you can
1: you can you can take that one, and I'll oh. I'll follow up.
2: <laughs> I'll say simple answer, no, and my, then I will say, over to you. <laughs> you love this topic,
1: yeah. So, <laughs> no, I I don't like single mass flywheels. Um, you know, we've we've proven that they increase harmonics, and you end up with false knock. The knock sensors pick that up and uh, pull the ignition angle down. That elevates exhaust gas temperatures, and it also screws all kinds of things up. It decreases power, um, just like what we've seen with uh, aftermarket engine mounts that are too rigid. Uh, It it helps to induce false knock that would normally have a harmonic that is absorbed in that softer, more compliant mount that the ECU was tuned around, and the knock sensors were tuned around. You know, I first came across that with 964 993s where uh, first time we saw really knock sensing in these engines and uh, we had the knock sensing bridges that bolted on the cylinders and even the way you torque those matters uh, to the ability of the knock sensor to do its job. Um, But even those engines don't really prefer to have a single mass flywheel um, except for the, the 89 964 that had one to begin with, which is its own situation. Um, but if you're buying an engine from me and you have a single mass flywheel, you're going to have to buy a dual mass and you're not ever going to use a single mass again. That's the way I'll answer that question.
0: (laughs) Okay. Here's a big question. Uh, Asking why are UK rebuilds much cheaper than North American rebuilds? I hope they're taking the exchange rate (laughs) into account. Well,
1: Lee say what you want about that and then I'll try to to follow it up from the from the other side because I sell stuff too so I kind of I see both sides of it a little bit.
2: Well I think one main difference between ourselves and, and what you do you fit a lot more new parts than I do. We had the discussion didn't we a water pump straight away a water pump first thing you will always fit a new water pump. I don't necessarily always fit a new water pump. So that's one of the, I know the water pump's at a small cost, and I'm not saying that's the main difference, but I think price of parts, and, and I know your heads, you send your heads out, don't you? I think you fit valve seats in everything, don't you? Yeah,
1: so it's, it's one of those things where, as a consumer, it's really hard to compare these engines. And and when I say what I'm about to say, I'm not aiming it toward hard tech at all because I've never even looked to see what you guys charge for an engine. I don't I don't even know. But when I see what we do compared to everybody else in the states, I see that the pricing is like apples to spaceships. You know what I mean? It's it's not even close <laughs> because. And Like you said, you you came out and said we fit more new parts, and 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 we do. And the main reason I do that is because I don't want a water pump to take out my engine. I just don't want to. So I have an aviation background, and, and moreover, I have a rotary wing aviation background, where you know you're going to fall out of the sky at terminal velocity if um, if you have a mechanical problem. So. I also don't like to deal with problems. I don't even like for a sensor to give a problem. So, you know, now we're making people buy new math sensors. We're making them buy new crank sensors. You know, we're we're adding all these things in because time and service is leading to it. And that adds a tremendous amount to the price. Um
2: where we, we, we and, don't make anybody buy anything. We, yeah, we, we, you, you we see, that's that yep. That's a much op- different thing as well. Yeah, they have the option i will assess a water pump if i think that water pump's okay to refit i will give the customer the option yeah it's fine i can refit it it's not an issue if you want a new one i'll fit a new one so so where you're you're insisting they have it we don't so like you said it's just tiny differences in in how we deal you deal with customers and we deal with customers
1: yeah, and at the end of the day, that just as a comparison, that's a $400 difference in the price of the engine just from a water pump, right? Mm-hmm. So, um, And the other reason I do it this way is because I have a service plan that kind of goes for the first 120,000 miles when somebody gets one of these cars back, and it says all of these items are replaced. Now, at these different service intervals, if you own the car for 10 years or, and you drive 120,000 miles, whatever – This is when you need to change out your coil packs again. This is when you need to change out your spark plugs again because we started from scratch and we know what all those things are. And like even belt rollers now, right? Where all the belt rollers are starting to to fail. Uh, We're seeing alternators fail a lot. Um, We're seeing fuel pumps fail a whole lot, right? So the, the guy that's buying an engine from me today is completely different than a guy that bought one like an 08 or whatever because back then, we didn't see fuel pumps fail. You know, we didn't see high fuel trim numbers because a fuel pump was taking a crap. You know, we didn't we didn't see any of that. We didn't see, we've always seen math sensors go bad, but we didn't see knock sensors going bad. We didn't see oil level sending units going bad. So every year we have to reevaluate and say, okay, now what have we learned this year? What, what, is, what needs to be changed now? There also has to be a stopping point, right? Because you can't just replace every single freaking thing. But at the end of the day, I want to make it where anything we know is a problem, we address it, and especially things on the inside, right? If it's something on the inside, that's where the option is never in the hands of the consumer. The option is always going to be something I'm going to do, and I think you guys are the same way. But on the outside, yeah, a water pump, usually it's going to give you a fault. Usually you're going to have a problem. It's going to leak. It's going to do something, and you're going to catch on that you got to do something with it. It's probably not going to cost you an engine. Now – I'll share something with you guys. Last week, I had a hose fail while I was testing a car, and it cost me a, a, a repair. While I was testing the car, a hose that never fails failed. And before I could get the car shut off, it blew all the cooling out. We had to tear the whole damn thing back apart. And the customer's a great customer of mine. He's bought several engines from us. I've done work on his turbo, done work on all kinds of stuff. He's probably watching us now. His engine's back apart. I called him up and said, hey, I was testing your car, and I did my job. I broke it, right? So not everything is unicorns and rainbows. <laughs> but, but now that's a hose that we're going to have to replace every time, and we, we've seen that. So, yeah, I think when you really start comparing apples to apples and you actually have a list of things that are done and a list of components that are done, you see that it ends up costing about the same once you really start adding it up. There's not a lot of difference if you compare both of them at the same level. Um, and again, we're doing the same work in, in most cases. Now, the one thing I will say is that the exchange rate and all that is a, is a bit different. And then, you know, I've sent some guys to you from the States. I mean, you, you do some 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 work for people here. And then also, I, I like to say sometimes I send you my problem children, <laughs> like the guy last year, which he, he's happy from what I could see. Um, but we know a lot of the same people. We do a lot of the same thing. And at the end of the day, we have our own ways of doing stuff, and there's a cost associated with that. And And what I want to end this with, and I think you'll agree with this, Lee, it does not matter what the car cost. It costs the same to build the engine, no matter how cheap or expensive the car is, no matter how nice or how junky the car is. The cost of the engine and getting to the finish line with a good end result is going to cost the same, no matter what. Yeah, definitely.
0: Yeah. All right. So the next question is from GC996. Can you discuss the differences the difference in how both companies address oil starvation and oil pressure stability in your builds
1: well i'll start off with that one so i make a lot of internal changes to the to the engine so you know of course i've developed most of the things that ln sells and and some of those things i don't even use because i've, I've learned that my internal changes will overcome them because in some racing classes back in the day we couldn't add those things so they weren't they weren't allowed but nobody ever said what we could do on the inside. At the end of the day, my trick is to keep the engine running cooler, increase the coolant interchange between the block and the cylinder heads, keep that oil cool, keep the coolant cool, and increase volume through the engine because volume is always going to trump pressure in most of these cases. Um, A lot of things we see, oil becomes aerated because oil is returning from the cylinder heads at a higher rate, and it is not being fully deaerated by the factory aeration system, deaeration system, if you will, not the air oil separator, but the factory way of taking the air out of the oil that returns from the cylinder heads. So I would say that I try to solve those problems from an internal perspective, and I try to address those issues at their root because we've learned the hotter that oil gets, the harder it is to control when it's inside the engine.
0: Sounds good. Lee, did you want to add anything there? I think Jake just nailed that
2: one pretty much.
0: Okay. Uh, I was waiting for this question. This is from Robert. He says Have either of you guys seen cylinder bore scoring with the Gen 2 closed deck engines, the 9 Alpha 1 on the Absolutely. 997 2 and the 987 2?
1: I don't know why. People I, we haven't think talked these about
0: are... it a lot on the forums yet. Yeah. Cause we, a lot of the form people think that the nine alpha one is just a perfect, a flawless engine, but what are you guys seeing on those engines?
1: Well, I'm going to just come out and say this right now. I don't like the engines. I'm going to see what Lee says about it. I don't like them. I don't like working on them. I don't like developing them. I don't like anything about them. Now, does that mean that we don't build them? No, because in, in the United States we've took the very first one apart Um, and and built it to a 4.2, and had it done by February of 2010, and we've been doing it ever since. So the first time I saw bore scoring on one of those engines was in 2010, and it is a problem with those engines. It is one of the only problems they have at this point, along with some timing chain issues that Lee and I have both seen, but yes, those bores do score, Yes, we are seeing an increase in those bore scoring, and I've even seen it happen from GT4s. I've got a, a, a build on my list right now for a 2018 GT4. So they are not immune to this. They are alucil. They have a lot of the same characteristics that have led to the problems with the alucil, and we are seeing some of the same traits. And it does seem that environment is playing into it. We also are seeing that fuel injectors are playing into it because they're failing. Um, and, and the spray pattern starts to go bad. That's one of the problems that we've seen kind of add into it. And the running clearances are all over the place, like Lee had talked about earlier. So, Lee, go ahead and break their heart just like what I did.
2: Yeah, I think one of the biggest issues these are going to have is, like you said, the running clearance. I don't think the scoring in the same manner as your M96, M97. I actually think the seizing, the trying to seize. When you get a bore score, it's not a seizure as such um you, you 9A1s are actually seizing the pistons and they're not scoring the same i think it's actual a partial seizure they start with then yep, you get i do the too. I, I,
1: I see the same thing especially on cylinder 1 like i talked about that's the cylinder that we see fail in almost every case when well, 9 alpha 1 is cylinder number 1 and the piston always looks worse than the cylinder does yeah, and that's yeah. I, I agree that the seizure is definitely playing into that now, I don't know if you do much with Cayennes, but I also have seen the same thing with the bore scoring and cayenne engines. Um, you know, the cayenne's really aren't worth fixing at our level because people just they just put a junkyard engine in them at this point. They're great cars. I wish they had held their value better. Um, but you know, they did the same thing. We we always noticed there was more of a trait between the bore scoring of a cayenne engine compared to a nine alpha one. Than there was between an m96 m97 seven, and a nine alpha one now the reason for that is they're both sil, right so they both are sil where the m96 and 97 is locosil um but yeah i'm with you i think it, i think it's seizure and i think it's running clearance and if you watch something i want everybody to do is go watch the um the the factories uh show right was it ultimate factories or whatever? The very first scene in that Ultimate Factories thing on Discovery Channel here in the States, it shows the, the uh, ring compressor tool at the factory, which is automated, come down and wrap around that piston to allow the rings to be compressed, put the cylinder and piston together as a unit. Right? I want you to listen, turn the volume really loud when that film is, is played, and you'll hear a clicking sound. And I seriously think that part of this happens during manufacturing, because when that piston ring compressor does its job, it basically is jamming the piston rings into the ring grooves. And now you and I both know how we have to take our fingers and manipulate those piston rings exactly where they need to be before we use our tapered sleeve ring compressor that we both use and came up with independently, by the way, to do that job. So if we're having to sit there and do that by hand and a machine comes in and does that same practice, that could very easily add an injury that manifests itself later on down the road.
2: No, no, I totally agree. It, it, it it's a different issue, but people think it's the same issue, but it's not. I think I, I told I so totally believe it's all with piston clearance for your M9A1 engines. Absolutely down to clearance, no doubt about it. I think it's a completely different failure, but looks the same.
1: And then, of course, we both seen the issues where the factory had omitted the oil parts out of the engine uh, starting in, in uh, November of 2011. Um, I've got a big thing I do in my hands-on class with that. I, I had a Cayman R, a 2012 Cayman R. The um, engine was built in January of 2012, it, and, and I pulled it apart. I pulled apart a bunch of 9 Alpha 1s before that, and it had missing parts in it. There was missing parts in the engine. There was missing O-rings. And then I bring that up. And then within a few days, a TSB is released saying those parts were omitted on purpose. And then you guys ran into this earlier this year, right, Lee? Yeah, so and then and hard. then Barry and I were going back and forth. And now you guys have made a gasket for that. And I've done kind of the same thing, used sealants and machining and this and that on the oil pump side of the 9-Alpha-1. So that's another thing that we ran into Apart from each other, but then we both found it and we asked each other about it. I'm like, ding, ding, ding. Yep, I've seen that
2: too. Mm-hmm. I sold it. <laughs> well, the I'm next question
0: soldiers. the next question is going to be one that I, I kind of think the answer, but uh, they one, uh, the guys want to know what is the German company that's doing iron liners that you recommend? And I don't think, Jake, you recommend iron liners, correct?
1: Well, no, I'm not. I'm not going to recommend an iron cylinder by any means. I don't think Lee is either. What we were specifically saying was there's one person who has really, truly tried to develop this instead of haphazardly slapping a cylinder in inside the apparent material. Um, I don't know. What's the name of his company? Do you know Uh, Lee? John, it's
2: Works Motor. Works Motor. That's right. Yeah. Okay. it's a smashing blow. To be fair, we, I talk a lot with John. To be quite honest, and he makes it work, and it works well. Yeah. So. And he I'm, I'm uh, he messaged
1: to. me today. He's he's having a problem with a an engine that has a tensioner issue. Yeah. And he yeah. And we're but we're all three trying to fight that. Right. So we have kind of created our own little circle of of uh, help between each other because we all see things the other guy hasn't seen. You know, at some point.
0: Okay. Uh, the next question is. Do you both agree that fuel injectors need to be replaced on every uh, engine rebuild? I would think that by now, if you have the original fuel injectors, that would be a smart thing, but I, I don't know if the person is asking, Benjamin is asking that it should be replaced every time the engine is rebuilt. I mean, I, I would imagine there would be a, time, a significant time frame between rebuilds that you would definitely want to do it when the engine's out of the car.
1: Yeah, well, from my perspective, it's another one of those things like a water pump. I'm going to do it because if it's a 996, they've been around since 2005 at the newest. And we're talking 15 years old um, with the 996 being at the end of production in 04. So you're talking 15, 16 years old. And that's 15, 16 years of being exposed to ethanol laden fuel that is killing fuel pumps, killing fuel lines, killing fuel pressure regulators and cars that have them. Uh, it even kills fuel filters in cars that have them. Um, so that's the reason why I get away from it, not that it, they're dirty. The fact that we see mechanical wear be too high with them because the the fuel no longer has the lubricity that it used to have. So the fuel is is basically killing the injectors at, at a rate that is crazy here in the States. Um, and we're seeing bore scoring aggravated by that, not caused by it. But it is aggravated by that, and it's certainly something. If the engine starts to run rich because it's got a bad poor a, poor a poor spray pattern, or if that injector leaks down when you shut the engine off, you know those things are going to end up dumping fuel in that cylinder that is going to be a solvent that washes the oil off the cylinder wall, and that cannot help bore scoring. It you know, can only hurt it. So, Lee, on your side, do you guys always replace injectors, or do you do it if you need
2: to? Again, if we need to, um, obviously we check them. If there's an issue with after, when we put it back in, then obviously we'll change them, but it's not something we change automatically. I don't think there's many things we would change. We say, obviously, you've got your crank bearings, your chains, your plastics, they're getting changed. Obviously, your cylinders, your pistons. Other than that, like you say, your water pumps, your oil pumps, your injectors, if it needs them, it has to have them. If it doesn't need them, then no, it doesn't, it, we don't change them. I'd like to say we don't just change things for circuit changing, but that's not the right way. It's just we don't. We will check things. If they're usable, we'll use them.
1: Sure. and And there's some instances where I've done that, too. Back when the cars were newer, I did it a lot more than I can now, obviously. Um, because back then, a good example, let's say to, go back to 2004, 2005, whatever, and an engine died because of an IMS bearing. Well, that car might have only been two years old. We could use a whole hell of a lot more stuff, right? Because, and even back then, you couldn't buy a lot of the parts you can buy now. You know, that's the stuff which is, it wasn't here in the States. Uh, and if it was, you had to wait three weeks to get it from Europe um, because there was nobody else working on these things internally. So, um, yeah, as time, has changed. It's made me go forward and change other things that that we didn't used to change years ago.
0: All right. Next question is: Can a base model Boxster Cayman 2.7 liter be uh, bored out to a four liter or a three eight?
1: I can do it, but I won't. And the reason why is because you don't have the the vehicle to To work with it without doing some massive conversion work. So I've got one here now, it was a, a retired race car. It started out like as a world challenge car or something. It was a two seven because of that. And they put a, a three eight engine in it and they half-assed put it in the car and the exhaust gas temperatures got so high that it melted the exhaust ports. Um, it had all kinds of problems. It's blown up so many clutches, it blew holes through the, through the gearbox bell housing. You put your fist through um the other thing is the cylinder heads will never support it even though you could swap cylinder heads out you can even put three eight heads on that block and i could put 103 104 millimeter bore size into it i'm not going to do it the only time that i've done that is when we had a case where we were doing like an r43 or r44 and we needed a certain case code so it had the right provisions for secondary air pumps and things like that on top of it We have also, we've been able to make that work for a guy that had like, let's say he had a 38997, his engine grenaded, he didn't have a block left anymore. Well, that block on the outside has a lot of the same attributes as what we need to fit his car. So in that case, we bore the block and make it work in that later model car. Um, But I do not want to do it. And I'm going to tell somebody if they've got a base model car, go buy an S.
0: Well, how far can you your take? Your uh, out of it, so. How can how far can you take the base model boxer? I'm assuming the base model 986 is what a 2.5. So, how far can you push a 2.5 and a 2.7 M9X engine?
1: We, we, as far go, as we I'll go, I, I was going to say I'll I'll take them to 2.9. 2.9 is as far as I go with that. Um, and it is pretty easy to to swap out a crankshaft uh and, and Kind of make your own two seven from a two five that's easy to do, and then you can go what the next size over and you can take that two five use the two seven crank with it and and then go ahead and put the next bore size with it and take the two five to a two nine so that's as far as I go because the cylinder heads won't support anything more than that even if you poured them from my perspective but Lee now you can add your two cents
2: i think I think we check our we have a two seven box, which we've took two three seven um that's pushing to its very top limits. And that, that's as far as we're going to go. We limit everyone we do to where we, Barry, has worked it all out. I mean, we have reports on, on all this, on all the oversized engines we do, which are free if people want to read them. Uh, really, we push it to the limits of it being right. We are having to cost a lot more to change a lot more things, if you will. So they can take this, most of the standard stuff that's on it but still, get the conversion to a bit more power.
1: Yeah, and you know, I think the key there is because the cylinder heads will bolt in. You can, if you have the interchange down, you know, with that. If especially if that was a three chain engine, you know, you can even put a Cayman cylinder head on it. So, I mean, there's a lot of things you can do. But you know, the reason why I really wouldn't take it bigger than two nine without changing the heads is because that that port's done. Those 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 ports are very small. Um, there's not, you, know, you can sit there all day long and machine them, but, you know, if you start with a, a head from a bigger engine to begin with, that kind of helps some, I mean, there's a big difference between the two five and two seven heads. Um, back when we used to do a lot of, uh, this class limited stuff, you know, a big bolt on power adder was to put two seven heads on a two five. That was a, a huge, a huge way to go. And then people started figuring that out over time and started looking at part numbers and things like that when the cars were in impound. Um, but uh, there's always ways around that stuff, too. But, you know, I, I think, you know, everybody has their own limitations about how far to go. To me, one of the main limitations I think we have is what you've got for intake and what you've got for exhaust. You know, if you can't get more air in and you can't get more air out, then making the air pump bigger doesn't make a lot of sense. It just creates something that's inefficient um, because you've got to move air in. you got you got to create the burn and you got to move it you know, move the air back out. And I think getting that combination right of intake, exhaust, you know, camshaft, uh, bore size, all that, that's the key. That's what makes us an engine designer as well as a builder. Um, because at the end of the day, if you don't get the combination right, you know, it's just like a. sometimes I'm on the flow bench and I see people who've ported heads and they have less flow than a stock head. Uh, because they don't understand the the dynamics behind what makes a port really work, they take the they take the material from the wrong part of the port. They make the port really big. They think that they're doing something because it's big and it looks awesome. But they've killed the velocity. They've 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 basically created a pig. Uh, out of that port and they don't know it because they don't have a flow bench and they don't know what it takes to to make a mistake you know if you make a mistake and the engine makes less power you learn pretty damn quick on the dyno that you're either a hero or a zero <laughs> you know so um but yeah bigger's not better i tell people that all the time and, and all the time we, we it's just like bigger, bigger, bigger. I want to go bigger, bigger. Spend more time on a more efficient engine and you'll have something that has better manners. It has better fuel economy. It has more usable power, has better average power. It makes more torque. It has better throttle response. It lives longer. It runs cooler. uh, All those things. Everything follows efficiency.
0: Well, Jake, that's all the questions we have. Um, Unless there's anything else, Lee, that you want to say um i think it'll be about time to wrap this one up we're a little bit over time i think but i'm fine with keeping it going if you want to
2: (laughs) i I must say i i I need to be the first person who hasn't bought an engine to get a sports bike
1: (laughs) (laughs) yeah yeah so um (laughs) <laughs> I mean, pretty much in closing, I mean, I, I appreciate having you on. I think the yeah. next thing we want to do is I, I want to get Barry on here um, because I want to talk a, a lot now that we've kind of established what we do to build things different. and But it, we're doing things almost the same as far as developmental wise and, and came up with our own ideas. I want to get some in, input from him about the way he tested things and the way he designed things. Because when I've talked to him on the phone, and we've done some Zoom stuff back and forth together, it's almost like we're looking in the mirror. We have the same thoughts about testing stuff. We have the same thoughts about how to get results. And then you you build it and see what you did. And then you step back and you look at it and say, okay, this really worked good. This didn't work good. I want to change this one thing and put it back together and see what happens because that's how you practically solve problems. You can't sit there with a computer and a piece of paper and come up with all these specified things that are supposed to happen and expect to have an end result. Um, I think that's what got these engines in the problems that they had that we've effectively solved on our side, and you guys have solved on your side.
2: Oh Yeah, I mean, if if we can get Barry on, I mean, I'll pay to watch that one. (laughs)
1: <laughs> I think he will do it. He wanted you to be the guinea pig.
2: So. I know he did, yeah. He set me up, didn't he?
1: Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yep, but you did good. Yeah, thank
0: you so much, Lee and Jake. Thank you, and thank you to everybody that's joined us tonight, that uh, asked questions and, and participated in this. I think this was a great time. Uh, I just want to remind everybody that uh, that we're going to be doing the webinar this fall and it's gonna be on what's in my oil. This is not to be confused with the used oil analysis. That's a totally different thing. This is gonna be about, you're looking in that canister, you're looking in the filter media, are you pulling that sump and you see stuff that's not supposed to be there? What is it? What should I do? Jake is gonna present that, it's a three part series that's coming up this fall. So please follow us on Facebook. Renvision and you can also follow us on Renlist as well as other platforms here on YouTube as well. So thank you so much for everybody joining us. I hope you have a great time. A great night.